My perspective on the best way to learn finance and financial analysis is one of two ways. In the early 1990s, I started reading annual reports along with learning the art and science of fundamental analysis. So that's method number one. Method number two, it wasn't until about 10 years into my consulting career that I bumped into a turnaround book that's one of my favorites, and you probably know it if you've listened to a recent show on turnarounds. Well, studying the mind of a turnaround expert, that to me is the other great way to learn finance. And one of the newer books in this space is Corporate Turnaround Artistry by Jeff Sands. Guys, you have hit Pater because this is one of my favorite interviews this year. Again, the book is Corporate Turnaround Artistry. My visit with Jeff Sands is coming up next. Oh, yeah. This is Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. I own six or seven books on turnarounds, and I could be wrong, but I think this is the first one I've read where Jeff, the author, ran a business that he ultimately turned around. And then with the advice and input from a mentor, Jeff then went into uh, business consulting full-time as a turnaround specialist. And that's how we started this conversation with Jeff Sands. Yeah, and you're right. I I never aspire to be a turnaround professional. Um, I don't know if anybody really does. Um, and my, 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 I always thought, you know, I'd do some fanciful startup thing with a nice office and, uh, you know, all, all the things that people make you fall in love with about business. Um, and my dad was a successful entrepreneur that built a really good company. And I had worked there as a kid, uh, returned around the age of 30. Uh, I was working my way up there. My first turnaround was in that business. Um, it was pre-Katrina. And my joke is that it um, took us three years to pull off a six-month turnaround. Uh, sales had dropped. The bank came in and kind of put the hammer to us. Our friendly banker uh, all of a sudden wasn't so friendly. Um, I, I'm going to say suffered through that because the conditions were more in control than I was. Um, and we were, you know, sort of uh, getting at the end, getting whipped about. Finally got everything squared away. Everything was fantastic. Profits, bookings, pipeline. I mean, every single metric except the balance sheet was still weak, um, but everything was going well, um, so well that I took a vacation and uh, left New Orleans. And during that um, week-long vacation, Hurricane Katrina rolled in, flooded the house, wiped out our neighborhood, um, flooded the factory, scattered the employees, and... um, I, I, I came back to that, and that was um, after that one. I thought, well, geez, now I know about fixing businesses because I've done it twice, and um, and I got lucky enough to run into a gentleman in Virginia who ended up being my turnaround mentor, and um, and really opened my eyes to you can do this as a career, and you can do it without your own neck in the noose, which is the best part of it. Um, and and that's that's ultimately how I, I got into it. Uh, Van gave me the confidence to hang my own shingle and um, and went from there. And I've been doing it for other people since, and that was fourteen or so years ago. 
I'm reading between the lines, Jeff, in your book. Yes, it's it's a great profession. You're able to help the clients you're serving. You're obviously helping the banks, lenders. There are a lot of people, but you're also helping the employees in those businesses as well. Something tells me that you like all the facets of the people that come out, hopefully, from a positive, hopefully it's a, a positive success story for all of those constituents. Is that correct? A- a- absolutely. And I think growing up in a family business in a small town uh, helped, you know, where to my detriment, we, I was too sentimental and too paternalistic about the business. Um, but, you know, th- those things are still good. They have to be equally balanced with, you know, with the need to stay alive. But the, for me, the ability to <clears throat> go into a community, fix the largest business in the county, uh, save the jobs right off into the sunset, and some years later, drive back through the town and take the wife and kids past the factory and point, you guys remember when I worked here and, you know, in the parking lot's full. That's, uh, that's just the most wonderful feeling in the world for me. I was going to say, I bet it does. You, you tell a story in the book that I bet of all the people that read this book, friends, I bet they bring this story up. But before I mention it to you, I don't know this firsthand, but I've, <laughs> I've read somewhere where if a hippo is chasing you, you don't run. You just turn around and stand still, and that's how you survive. Well, you don't have a hippo story. You have a grizzly story. You were within, what was it, arm's length? Arm's length and about a foot. Oh. Maybe four feet away. (laughs) And you're thinking, how am I going to get out of this? Uh, I would have just been, I would think paralysis would have just kicked in. But how how did that happen? Well, I I mentioned that because I was trying to describe the the CEO's brain in a crisis. And, um, that was the, the the worst reaction I've ever had. And um, I literally blacked in and out of consciousness multiple times. Regrettably, that never changed anything. Like I'd come to and I'd look up and there'd still be this bear just on all fours, uh, four feet away from me. And I was on all fours. He had walked up on my camp. Um, in, in the book I described, it, it was very, very remote, uh, 30 miles from the road, you know, another hour to a village of 12 people. In Alaska, um, Alaska. Yeah, far, far northern Alaska, up in the Brooks Range. And, um, and and sort of similar to a hippo, a bear's most dangerous in, in two situations, when you're right next to him, which of course I was, and when you're running away from him, which I really wanted to do and was trying to resist the urge because that sets off the predatory instinct. And um it was a semi-conscious experience for me, uh, but I eventually got away. He eventually uh, sniffed around the camp, rolled rolled all through my stuff like a dog sort of does when they smell something on the ground and turn upside down. Rolled all through my stuff and then wandered off. And um, I packed up my stuff and ran out of there as fast as I possibly could. But, you know, I, I, my brains reacted like that in um, the semi-conscious vapor lock in turnarounds. And, um, and I've seen entrepreneurs do it as well. And I, and I think it's just being conscious of that, um, you know, to, cause you got to get back to reality. CRO chief restructuring officer, they need that mindset, right? 
Absolutely. The the ability to see through the fog, to find the patterns, to, you know, boil things down into simple steps, you know, eating the elephant, you know, here's the, here's the first three things we're going to do. Just do that today and we'll work on something else tomorrow. I want to throw you some just easy lobs here, some, just some softball questions if that's okay. And I'm going to use some terms that you bring up in the book. What is a broken P&L? Uh, basically, P&L income statement is unprofitable, uh, which tells you there's something wrong with it. And, you know, of course, that drains cash and resources away. It's different than a broken balance sheet. Um, and the broken P&L really gets down to your model. Um, you know, uh, what's the cost to produce it? What, what cost are you selling at? Um, and, and that's really a broken P&L. For broken P&Ls, historically, is typically the broken the brokenness up on the top line or in the middle or further below? You, to an extent, uh, I walk in the door thinking that the top line is what it is and we have to deal with it and we have to structure the business on that revenue base um, because we're, you're usually dealing with a cash crisis. If you have unlimited funds, um, you know, look at uh, any venture. They always say, well, we're unprofitable because we don't have the top line. I generally walk into older, more established businesses that have found product market fit. Uh, my niche is really old manufacturing businesses because they're complex and they have or had good systems at some point. They've just lost their way. Um, so for me, it's usually a, a, a below the top line. It's a cost structure. And it's quite frankly, it's usually gross profit margin, which gets to either two things, either the courage to price properly or the courage to drive your business um, in, in a cost efficient manner. And you brought up, and Jeff, you brought up the balance sheet, but a broken balance sheet is? Uh, basically, when your liabilities exceed your assets. And um, that is, <clears throat> what what becomes of that often, what causes the turnaround is you have more debt than the business can sustain. Um, and maybe it made sense at one point, and then interest rates went up, or the profitability of the company dropped, the, ca- the cash flows of the company and they're struggling to uh, service their debts. You can also have a profitable, healthy company with just too much debt on top of it. Um, so sometimes that the the balance sheet has to go and be restructured. And um, maybe I'm going to guess half my clients have had both uh, broken P and L and broken balance sheet at the same time. They, they usually run in crowds. You brought up a concept. I mean, I, I kind of know it, but I've never thought of the two words use the concept debt stack. And I thought that was brilliant. Now, a lot of the businesses I serve, we have a traditional revolving line of credit, maybe some term debt, and then everything else is uncollateralized like AP, but uh, where there's a little bit more complexity with the debt structure, your whole concept of debt stack, I just thought was brilliant. For the people that haven't read the book yet, just what's the quick skinny on a debt stack. It's essentially who gets paid first in a um, in a crisis or a liquidation. And what's interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a bankruptcy attorney, and we were talking with another attorney. And the bankruptcy guy said, and and he didn't grow up with desiring to be a bankruptcy attorney. It's just his mentor was, and that's where he ended up. But um, 
he he said was needed is like a four-year attorney. He's getting partners with 20, 30 years experience coming and asking him these basic things. And he thinks bankruptcy restructuring insolvency is the best way to learn about business because you really understand the, the foundation that the entire economy sits upon. And the foundation that the entire economy sits upon is basically your debt stack, um, your prior, you know, uh, debtors' priorities. Um, what, what happens when debts don't get paid? And you go back, banks are 7,000 years old. So these rules have been written for over 7,000 years. Lord knows they were informally written before that. And um, when you get in trouble as an entrepreneur, you you look and you, and you, and I did this. I thought, oh, shit, I'm in trouble with my bank. Um, let me go read the loan agreement. And you read the loan agreement and you realize, First of all, you probably ne- never read in the first place. And secondly, it, it, it's very long and it's insanely tilted towards the, the lender. Right. Um, and then you go look up bankruptcy rules like, OK, well, I don't like what I don't like the bank's leverage. How can I gain leverage back? You look at bankruptcy rules, you realize those are entirely written for the creditors as well. And you realize that for 7,000 years, the banks have been writing commercial lending laws. And in 7,000 years, they have never written it to their disadvantage. Um, <laughs> and when you get in trouble as an entrepreneur, you realize that you, you know, the weight of the world sort of tilted against you. Um, but you know, those are the rules of the game. And if you understand them and you understand the nuance and you understand the wiggle room that there is, that's basically where you know where, where I live and and restructuring attorneys live, and it's that that thin little space which is fed by cash flow. If you have cash flow, you could you have options. If you don't have cash flow, you're out of options. Uh, that you know, oh, and then the debt stack is so uh, you know a, a senior secured lender is the bank, your local neighborhood bank. They come in, they take a lien on all assets. <clears throat> if something goes wrong, they foreclose, which everybody's familiar with. You call in an auctioneer. You sell off the assets, they take the money. Then you have other other layers of debt underneath them, and that's the debt stack. So once the, the top level, the, say the bank gets paid in full, then whatever money is left over rolls down to the next one. And maybe let's say that's like a, um, a BDC, a business uh, development um, loan from the state. Maybe they get paid and then if there's any money left, it'll drop to these um, general unsecured class, which is your your vendors um, and all the folks that you work with day in and day out, the trucking company, the office supply folks, uh, they're in a general unsecured class and whatever money is left over falls to them. And then if any money can make it through all those debtor classes, um, then there's then whatever's left over is equity uh, for the shareholder in a liquidation. I learned this from your book. Here's a great trivia question. Who gets paid first? An employee's payroll or the bank? Who gets paid first? Uh, employees. And it is universal. I did not realize that. I, I, and it's, it's black and white in the book. I thought, g- good one. And by the way, we're yeah. We're going to come back to bankruptcy uh, in a minute. I thought your chapter on bankruptcy was, to me, extremely accessible. I could understand it. And you also dispelled some myths like that one for those who did not uh, realize that. There's one other point I want to bring up on kind of these easy, basic questions on turnarounds. And, and if I could oh, go back to labor real, real quickly. You might find a lawyer arguing that, oh, labor doesn't necessarily get paid first, but 
as soon as labor is not paid, it's a Department of Labor issue, which is a federal issue. And it can labor and environmental can pierce the corporate veil. So by not paying labor, you may very quickly as, as an individual face the federal government looking for money for, for your employees. So it, 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 it's critically important. And a business can get to the point, this, this is weird. A business can get to the point where you have so little confidence in the ability to pay wages that the moral and legal thing to do is stand at the front of the building and refuse entry to the employees because they probably won't get paid and allowing them in would essentially be theft of wages. And I've been in those situations where I I can't let you come in here because I don't know if I can pay you and I can't that that would be a greater crime than sending you guys home today while we try to sort this out. Um, it, it it's and and you can imagine once an assembled workforce is gone, the business has a hard time restarting. So it's a very very delicate balance. We start off talking about a broken PL. We talked about a broken balance sheet. I'm prepping for an interview in a few weeks. There's a new book out on Blockbuster. And it's written by someone who uh, was a franchisee for many years. Before he worked, uh, before he was a franchisee, he was with HHEB, one of the top grocery store chains in America. And uh, he worked with them in their video rental. What I, I did not realize this, Blockbuster started shooting themselves Years before Netflix did not destroy Blockbuster, Blockbuster did. So you had a company that all they cared about was growth, grow, 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 grow. 3,000 stores in less than just a few years. And they had so much cash, they didn't know what to do with it. Well, they did. They started wasting it on things that just didn't work. So we talked about a broken P&L, a broken balance sheet. How often do you walk into a business where there's a broken management team? Um, Of course, it depends on how you define broken management team. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, I I had a CEO commit suicide once and I was in there the next day running the business. Um, And and the business was wrapped up in felonies and FBI investigations, which is what led to that. uh, in general, I say that a business is 30% broken. And 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 our conversation today, we're generally talking about businesses 10 to 100 million in revenues. Right. Um, and generally commercial industrial businesses with, you know, that are asset heavy. Um, and generally, it, it's the uh, entrepreneur's Achilles heel. You have a salesman, a natural salesman who forgot about accounting. You have a natural accountant who forgot about sales. You have an engineer who forgot about customer service. Um, and, and it's usually that. Uh, I've been blindsided once or twice where I walked in, and um, one in particular I can think of, I thought, okay, I know where the 30% broken is. The rest of it's probably working okay. And none of it worked well. It was just a mess from start to finish. And um, yeah, and, and yeah, that thing, everything about it was broken. But usually it's it's the Achilles heel thing. Um, and often, you know, I would say about the same thing. 30% of the managers, uh, a third of them are, you know, should probably be upgraded. And two thirds are solid that just need to be motivated, focused, given direction. Um and most of my turnarounds are uh, bad news bear stories. Um, you know, just uh, a group of folk 
works with, with you know, in, in some town, um, you know, not a big urban center that don't, aren't worldly, don't have worldly experiences, um, have operated at, medi- you know, good to mediocre to poor. They're poor at the moment, and we're going to get them all back to good and teach them process and structure and things like that that, uh, that they haven't seen before. And um, I'll tell you the other thing, and, and I've chastised folks where I walk into a factory and, and the work ethic's horrible. I'm like, none of y'all were raised this way. If I brought your parents in here right now and saw what you're doing with eight hours, you'd be embarrassed. If I brought your kids in here, you'd be embarrassed. But for some reason, 100 of y'all are screwing off every damn day and you all came from good homes. Um, that's just not acceptable. And either we bring your families in here and let them see what happens or we start getting our act together and have some pride. And everybody loves that. They want to hear it. Everybody's everybody would rather be on a winning team working twice as hard than a losing team taking it easy. I believe that's just a human condition, and I and and that's you know, th- that's sort of the energy that I tap into for turnarounds. Um, people want to win, and you just they just and they don't care about the work. They just want to win, and they just need somebody to show them how to win again. The reason I brought up management is early in the book you talk about these five phases of uh, the turnarounds in general, having five stages. Could you describe what those are? I had made it to the fourth step in our turnaround before I realized there were steps in our turnaround. I was so in the dark, but it's generally management change. Um, and, and then a quick evaluation. So if I get called in, you know, I'll, I'll step in for the CEO, the CFO, or if they're competent, I'll ride alongside of them. But, you know, I, I, I will take general operating control. Um, then it's a quick evaluation, um, you know, which might be a week. Um, and, and, and that is diagnosing and then um, prescribing the solution within a week. Then you've got your um, emergency action, which is, you know, rapid change to your cost structure, your pricing, um, it, all, all with an eye towards generating cash. Um, and then is the stabilization period where you try to you try to settle every everybody and everything out, um, and then to return to normal growth. I often describe this when we buy companies. I describe as there's three distinct CEOs. There's a hundred day change agent that radically changes the business and gets it on track. Then you've got the one year stabilization CEO who really sets deep roots, process, systems, accountability, focus, 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 and get a strong foundation. And and this is, you know, at the same time, we've already trimmed away all the dreams of, you know, all these different directions that were draining energy away from the core. And then the third CEO is the, um, the growth or slow incremental change. And it's kind of, you know, some industries just don't allow for rapid growth, especially if you're very capital intensive, um, you know, you just don't have the capital to grow. So then it's a slow incremental change mindset. Somebody who's really psyched to go home every Friday, knowing they made a 1% improvement. Whereas, you know, I'm the hundred day change person. Um, you know, that would drive me bonkers. I couldn't do 10 years of that, but there's people who love that and that's their role. And and in acquisition, we try to go through those three stages of CEO, often with two or three CEOs filling filling those roles. Anytime I start on a new client project, the first thing I build out is a driver base, a financial model. And one thing I want to 
give you a high five with is you always start with a blank sheet of paper, or I should say a blank spreadsheet. And I'm the same way because every business is a little bit different. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Why is it that even people, my peers, I've worked with other CFOs, other controllers, other strong financial minds, and some reason this 13-week cash flow forecast, they get tripped up with it. Well, why, why is that? It shouldn't be. To me, it's easy. It just, it's instinctive or instinctual. What's, what's the give, what's the, what's, what's the deal there? The, yeah, I, I think you could teach um, a 15-year-old a 13-week cash flow easier than a 45-year-old CFO. And, and, and I've seen that. And I think it's just, you know, so if you're a kid and you're aspiring to be an accountant, you earn a you earn cash versus accrual, and like a day later, you focus on accrual and you spend the rest of your career on accrual. Then you go all through accounting in grad school and and um, and and through your career. And I've had really really smart. I, I've walked in the businesses where I say, "Boy, that's a crackerjack controller, and that's an awesome CFO. We're good to go here. Um, I just got to tell these folks what to do, and they have great." careers working at big companies and they've never had a cash need and they've never had to think about cash or worry about cash. And every thought they've ever had has been something other than cash. And to say, okay, we're going to look at weekly cash flows. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like trying to teach Greek, you know, all of a sudden, and um, there is this huge disconnect. And it, once they get it, I'm thinking this one company in particular, these two individuals, it took a week or so before they really got a flow going. And then once, once I think everybody, once they do a 13 week cash flow and they get it, they love it because it's the single most powerful tool in business. It shows you, if you understand the cash flows of the business, you understand the business. And if you don't, you don't. And I think it's that simple. And I can walk into a company, and understand the cash flows and within a week, in many ways, I can make the true statement that I understand the business better than the CEO does and, and better than the bank does because the bank, quite frankly, sent me in there to understand the business at, at that level. And uh, it's just where the cash is coming and going. And um, as you know, you can have profits, you can have a great looking P&L, but if um, for some reason your customers didn't pay you the last couple of weeks and you spent a whole bunch of money on materials or bonuses... You can be out of cash. And once you're out of cash, like I didn't think it was this brutal. Like you sort of know, but you run out of cash. You really are washed up on the rocks. Um, th there's no one bails you out. It, um, everybody pulls their knife out on you. And it's just all of a sudden you're in the worst neighborhood you ever imagined in your, in your whole life. And um, and you you may have a profitable business, but things seem fine and Man, once you're out of cash, everything changes. So you know. So therefore, that is uh, my hundred percent focus going in. Is we have to maintain cash positivity, no matter what, and then everything else comes second. Our own business, we lost money the first my, my ridiculous three year turnaround. We lost money the first two years, but we stayed cash positive, and we basically, you know, rightfully so, declared it a success. And I'm thinking, how the hell could we be successful? We've been losing money for two years, but. Here we are. We're still alive, and uh, and we got a fighting chance. Uh, something tells me that, or, or let me let me backtrack a little bit. 
if you were to do a, a Google search on the term never run out of cash, I do not like that that wording. It should be, and you kind of said it, you alluded to it, never about <laughs> run out of cash. Because that's where that, that 13-week cash flow forecast is telling us is, well, we're about to run out of cash because when we do, it's 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 too- and, and when it gets tight, we'll do dailies. Uh, Wednesday is usually the low cash day of a week because you're funding payroll. Um, and uh, I've been in a lot of situations where we monitor it daily for the first couple months because cash is that tight. Um, yeah, but it, but you know, it's the only thing that matters, or it's the first thing that matters. You do not bring this up in the book. I'm going to make a, a prediction. I bet every company that you've worked for that's now a going concern, very financially healthy, business model healthy, I bet they're still using some some form of that 13-week cash flow forecast. Am I probably right? Uh, they all should a lot lose. It's amazing the um, <clears throat> the snapback because entrepreneurs are so proud and such, you know, and not in a bad way, control freaks. And um, they don't want somebody in there helping them run their business. And, um, you know, often a third, a quarter of the time, they just want me out of there quickly. There's one company, uh, $80 million a year revenue business. We got it. It was losing millions. We got it making millions. Everything's great. And I said, you guys, two brothers, I said, you guys are totally going to screw this up because you don't have the discipline to stick to the 13 week and all these other tools I've taught you. And I said, here's a deal. Why don't you keep me on and I'll eat last because I'm so confident in the, in my ability to make money here. I'll fill your guys' pockets completely and, and I'll survive on, on, on my share eating third. <clears throat> and they said, no, nah, no, nah, we just want our independence back. And they lost their business a couple of years later because ultimately the same sort of rude issues, the same nonchalance about uh, fundamentals. And it's, it's tragic. And, and others, you know, like it's a whole new religion. I worked on a roofing company last year and these guys are 13 week uh, cash flow maniacs. And I talked to them recently and business is still tough. A lot of, a lot of trouble getting supplies. But man, they know their cash flow perfectly. And I bet. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and they'll be fine. They'll twenty years from now, they'll still be around because they they, they really took it to heart and uh, and have embraced the fundamentals. You mentioned a term in the book. I wrote it down. Love the concept, and it's it's your it's your words, your your uh, mental construct. You call it the salvation process. What is that? Well, and I think it's begging for a better term, but I can't find Don't, it. No, 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 yet. Jeff, no, keep using it. Because I, I think the imagery just, oh, I, I think I know what that means. But obviously I've read the story, but just what's the quick skinny on the salvation process? So when, when a company gets in trouble and the banks, you know, somebody in the back office of the bank is doing their calculations and you've, you've blown through a covenant, which is usually your uh, debt service coverage ratio, uh, the ability to fund your debts. Um, if it drops below a threshold and the bank comes in and says, hey, guys, you need to change something. Why don't you bring in a consultant? 
what can happen is I can roll in the door and say, okay, we're going to fix this and whammo, we're, you know, we're going to go grow sales and get our way out of this. But then the bank's nervous because they're thinking, what if this doesn't work? And, um, and, and no matter what the plan is, the bank or the cynics are always there saying, well, what if this doesn't work? And if you're in trouble with the IRS or the EPA or anybody else, they're asking the same questions. And, and so what I've done in salvation process is cover the entire universe of possibilities. We're either going to, you know, uh, the best is we're going to grow our way out of these problems. And the worst is we're going to liquidate. Um, and then when a bank closes their eyes and pictures a liquidation, they picture acrimony and litigation and fighting and, you know, uh, loss of value and, and, and all that. And when an entrepreneur pictures a liquid or CEO pictures a liquidation, they picture, you know, being homeless and, uh, and litigation and, and acrimony. And so I say, well, the worst thing that could possibly happen here is a peaceful liquidation where the bank doesn't rip your eyes out and you go along peacefully and they let you off the personal guarantee. And, and I've been through it and it's not so bad. And, and, and then meanwhile, I'm telling the bank, it's a peaceful liquidation. We control it. We manage it. The CEO doesn't become crazy and attack the bank. And, um, that's the worst thing that can possibly happen. So let's let's build our plan. If plan A doesn't work, what's plan B? If plan B doesn't work, what's plan C? If plan C works, then we're out of the woods, you know, and we're off to the races. But if plan C doesn't work, what's the fallback there? So often it'll be, um, we're going to grow our way out of the problem. If that doesn't work, we're going to cut our way out of the problem. If that doesn't work, we're going to go sell to a strategic. If that doesn't work, we're going to go sell to anybody we can find. If that doesn't work, um, we'll probably do one more last-ditch effort. And if that doesn't work, we'll have a peaceful liquidation that looks like this and, and delivers these results. <clears throat> and um, and that, that that it calms everybody down. It uh, takes away the fighting. It gives a clear roadmap. It takes away the mystery, I think, most importantly, to the bank and to the, the debtor. And, and then I'll just throw in, you know, some businesses you say, well, let's just grow our way out of this. If you're selling, if you're uh, a contract maker of pharmaceuticals, it's a two-year development process to get through the testing to get an order and then maybe another 90 days to be shipping. So it's like, okay, right now, today, let's go. We're 27 months away from generating cash. Now, if you're a uh, plastic recycler, where you're just basically uh, buying low and selling high and swapping loads, you can make a difference that day. If you're a bar or retail shop, you can make a difference that day in the cash flow coming in. So, you know, your business model really drives what's available through the salvation process. But ultimately, it's it's that. It's taking away the, the mystery, the fear, the trepidation, giving everybody the same plan. Um, we're going to do this. And if that doesn't work, uh, we fall back, but we always know where we are. And, um, and we're not going to let fear take over. And my turnaround was all full of fear of what's around the next corner. And I never knew. And, and you know, and business schools don't teach you this. No one teaches you this stuff. One of my favorite stories in your book, Jeff, is a turnaround situation. Manufacturing plant. I'm trying to remember the city. Was it up in Ohio? And you ended up having to find a strategic buyer. You got, I think, at least three offers. You might have gotten more but you list out, you listed out at least three, and then you pick the one. And it turned out to be a win, win, win for everyone. 
uh, the buyer kept operations there. I think they ended up maybe even expanding. But in the world of strategic buyers, I know there's not a secret, but how do you start to flesh out the best one? And, and I know it's subjective, but is that sometimes difficult for you and your client in trying to figure out who do we pick? No, because, you know, I wish it was because that would mean there was such a crowd of so many amazing, nearly identical offers, um, you know, like selling a, a house in today's market. But um, it's and and I have now if you go strictly by the, the the book, you would take the highest price regardless to get the highest recovery, even when all the jobs get wiped out in the community and there's carnage everywhere. And quite frankly, that's the downside to the American and bankruptcy insolvency right. system. What makes America unique is we can have places like Cleveland and uh, like Palo Alto, places where that we've just completely abandoned and given up on and, and, and left, and then places where vibrancy is happening, and you can't get one without the other, arguably. Um, whereas a lot of countries say, oh, no, we're going to protect our industrial rust belt, and we're going to make sure these, these businesses don't leave. And we're going to prop them up for society's good, uh, not the owner's good. Yeah, and, and there's a philosophical argument one way or the other. We, in a distress sale, you're looking for, uh, there's a lot of tire kickers. So you're trying to boil it down real quickly. Who can actually close quickly? Who's done this before? Who, who's got the experience and, and, and whatnot? Who has, you know, real industry knowledge? I think in that story, we had like a um, a high price i'm trying to remember because i've been through several of these but often you'll get like i remember one was the 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 president's son the owner's son who was a cfo and you could tell he was going to make this like a six month um mba class project you know but i had a company on fire um yeah and then we had somebody else who wanted to buy it and move it to another town because that made sense but it wiped out a couple hundred jobs and, and the tax base and on and on and on. And, you know, and, and you see it when you go to these towns where they used to have industry and, you know, now they've got methadone clinics and all kinds of that. I, I you know, that bugs me. And I, um, I, I feel a little bit Cape Crusader trying to stop those things from happening in America and, and, and those towns. So I get a little too wound up in that. Uh, but you're looking for the the buyer who's going to take it forward. Now, the good thing about the U.S. system in Germany, they would just throw you out and take control and sell it to whoever they wanted to sell it to. And, and in most of Europe, whereas in the U.S., the failed owner who completely screwed it all up is still in charge. It, so is the, the, the um, in bankruptcy, they call it the honest but unfortunate. Um, and you have both. Either way, they're still in charge and they get to choose. So as much as the bank might say, we want the best, we want the highest price, the owner can say, um, "Yeah, but I'm, but I'm not doing that because we're not going to wipe out all these jobs. We're going to keep it here at a slightly lower price." The vendors are upset because they don't get the recovery, but at the same point, the vendors have a chance to to recoup their losses going forward with, with an ongoing business. The employees are better off, um, yeah, et cetera. I, obviously, I could carry on about that, but you know, that's sort of how we're we're vetting it, and and there is a huge distinction between now if you ask especially once the economy hits a bump who here who here does turnaround investing out of a hundred private equity firms 95 will raise their hand and say we do um 
be, you know, because why not? And um, like every CF, every unemployed CFO uh, in a recession is now a turnaround agent because they did one once. And but, you know, out of 100 who really has experience doing turnaround investing, maybe 10 of them, who's good at it, maybe five, who's got a knockout track record that you can feel great about, you know, it's two or three of them. Um, and you're, you're, you know, my job is to attract those folks to my situations and not waste my time with um, people who say they are. I was going to say, you probably have a short list of who those are uh, across the yeah. country. I do want to hit, we, we talked about bankruptcy earlier, and I started my career in the 1990s with KPMG. And almost through 30 years, I've never worked on a bankruptcy, never. So this is a foreign concept to me. I mean, I've read about it and I've read the headlines, but I have no idea what it's like, what it's like to go through. I, I love your message at the beginning and at the end of the chapter, avoid. Uh, it's, 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 it's really good advice. I did love your history references. Uh, I, I did know about debtor's prison over in England. But mm-hmm. I did not know about Genghis Khan's philosophy about bankruptcy. Not not very good. Uh, you didn't want to go bankrupt uh, during his reign, right? No. no. Uh, Genghis Khan's laws were the third bankruptcy uh, was death. Yeah. But, you know, also in there, I mentioned, now I forget the countries. It was like Saudi, uh, Middle Eastern countries had just recently introduced insolvency, you know, bankruptcy laws. Right. And um, prison was still a issue, uh, a threat in, in those countries and, and is in other countries for going insolvent. Um, but meanwhile, other, you know, Moses had laws of insolvency. Um, th- they go back forever. But oddly, some countries uh, just haven't dealt with it yet. And the U.S., everybody says, is the best the best system, the most copied, the most revered. It's not perfect, um, but it, it it's certainly the most thought out and most tried and true and tested. What was it? Was it China that you mentioned that you go to prison and they give you a phone and you've got to raise money to get that debt paid off? That's not easy. If you're the registered agent and there's wages, and that's not necessarily earned wages, it's wages and severance. Um, it, but if, if you're the unfortunate person who's a registered agent, the government holds that person accountable. Um, and, you know, if, and if you're a Westerner, they'll literally put you in a room for a year or two with a phone and just tell you to dial for dollars uh, and they'll let you out when you raise the money. Wow. <laughs> Don't be a registered agent. If I were some, if I were maybe David Letterman or Jerry Seinfeld, I might make the comment that uh, what is bankruptcy? It's about a two to three billion dollar business, and and it's a great business for attorneys. I know that's being a little sarcastic, but is there some truth to that? Uh, there is. It is an industry. It. Um, it moderates itself occasionally. Right around 08, there was uh, sweeping reforms because the lawyers will just keep these companies in bankruptcy and bleed all the all the cash out of them. Um, and unfortunately, that's a thing. We recently won a landmark case, uh, which I'm told was truly landmark and will be studied and referenced for you know decades. 
um, where a company was taken into bankruptcy by a collusion of uh, bankruptcy attorneys and other insiders. What happened was there was this huge windfall of cash. And all of a sudden, all the lawyers said, well, hold on, we don't want that cash going to some other parties. Let's just kill it with fees. And uh, that was their plan. And we actually were able to show to the judge that, um, that you know, they, they were not pure of heart in this and they just wanted to drain it of fees. And uh, God, my dad's in one right now that's been, I don't know, it's like seven years. It just, they, um, they, the lawyers figure out how to keep them there forever and just drain all the cash out of it. And it's just, it, it's a shame. And it gives uh, bankruptcy uh, a, a bad name and the judges clearly know this. Um, but it, and they try to moderate it, but it's, it's hard to make it perfect. I learned this from your book in the chapter on bankruptcy. And by the way, no pun intended. I don't know if this is by accident or by design. Did you know, uh, your chapter number of bankruptcy is chapter 11. Is that, is that accidental? You're going to, you're going to look it up. You're going to check it out. I, I kid you not. It is chapter 11. Am I right? No, not close. Chapter seven. Oh, chapter seven. It's the same punchline. There you go. Chapter seven. Chapter uh, seven's uh, just for the audience. Chapter seven's liquidations, and chapter eleven is reorganizations. Okay. Uh, okay. Got it. Got it. You, your your section on bankruptcy it did lift or raise a heightened sense of awareness with me. If I'm ever looking for a bankruptcy attorney, which by the way I'll probably just email you. Hey. Give me some names. But the other thing I would do is I would talk to some local bankers and and let's say they find, you know, here's an expert in, in bankruptcies. First question I'm going to ask them is how many bankruptcies have you been able to, and I'm going to use your word, avoid. And hopefully I'll get a good answer. Hopefully I'll find that attorney that's balanced is not just looking to, you know, get the fees, but they're really going to look at what's in the best interest uh, for, you know, their, their, their new client. Is, is that good advice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are one trick ponies where they think uh, bankruptcy is the cure to every ailment. And, um, and, and I've had, I remember I had an investment banker call me and he said, you know, the last three companies in this situation, I've called bankruptcy attorneys and they've all filed bankruptcy. And I'm wondering like, Maybe that's just what happens when you call a bankruptcy attorney. And I looked at it and I said, this is not a bankruptcy. I can get this business sold for you out of court. And, and we did. Um, and, I, and I would say um, I would not call bankers because they work with, and, and, and bankruptcy attorneys generally specialize, creditor, debtor side. They work with creditor side um, who are more process driven, um, straight down the line, not as creative. And and me, myself, I would look for a debtor side with litig- uh, an equal parts litigation and bankruptcy because they'll see bankruptcy as a tool to litigate uh, uh, or, or work their way out of a serious problem as opposed to the only tool in their in their toolbox. <clears throat> and um, I work with one, I'll actually plug in Peter Tamposi, um, New Hampshire, worked for a big firm in um in Boston for about 20 years and then spun off on his own. And um, I've done a lot of things with Peter and we've never done in bankruptcy because uh, he's always able to find a, another method. And, and the, the, the value of staying out of bankruptcy is 
far, far less expensive um, and, and less variables, um, more control and less expense if you do it right and stay out. And then if you, if you run your process parallel to a bankruptcy, if at any time you get pushed in, then you can say, judge, this is how we've run it the last, you know, two, three months. And the judge will say, okay, you've done it according to the bankruptcy book. We don't have to reverse anything here. Um, and, and, and that's the key. Cause if you sort of cowboy it and then you get put in the bankruptcy, the judge is going to look and say, you, you are being a cowboy. We're going to reverse everything. And then it's just an enormous mess and the business probably dies at that point. Tell Peter, next time you talk to Peter, tell him to write a, a book, a very simple book about bankruptcies. Tell him to keep it a hundred pages or less. And, <laughs> and, and I think it will sell well. Uh, that's opinion. I have some nosy questions for you. And you already knew I was going to ask some of these nosy questions, but I didn't go into a lot of detail. I, I mentioned KPMG, uh, a very... One of the most, one of the funniest, one of the coolest personalities I've ever encountered is a guy named Joe Hopkins, and he was instrumental in hiring me as a senior manager at the time for KPMG, and he was at a, an accounting function at Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri, and someone actually had the audacity to ask him, "What do you make?" And I thought, "You're kidding." <laughs> You don't ask that question. So Joe was not put off by it. He he actually stepped forward just a little bit. And he said, I make, and there's a pause. You could hear a pin drop. He says, I make more money than I've ever seen before in my life, but not enough to make me content. Great answer. Great mm-hmm. answer. But I want to ask you the question, what is the value of a CRO? Uh, I, I just have to ask, because I would think what you do and provide is immeasurable. Uh, probably what the value bring is even 10x, 20x, sometimes 100x more. So I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I have passionate curiosity and, and I, I'm intrigued because I, I just think that what you guys do is you can't even put a price tag on what you're doing. And you don't have to answer the question. It's, it's a way for me to just really lift up the arms of people doing what you do. Um, and, and I will say that um, <clears throat> I always walk in guaranteeing a two to one. Um, I'll, I'll deliver twice the value that I cost at a minimum. Um, bigger firms will just charge by the hour. Cause that's simple. Um, we're small. So what I try to do is, you know, maybe I got an hourly rate walking in the door, but I quickly try to get it to a monthly with a success fee. And, uh, you know, I don't have a big overhead, so I, I would rather gamble on a success fee and, and try to get the value. And early in my career, I'd produce 4 million worth of just one, one year value. We like, there's an extra $4 million here that wasn't here a year ago. Uh, let alone, you know, all, all the ongoing uh, value that comes from that. And I'd walk away with a couple hundred grand and think, man, I got to have a better formula here. So I try to work on that. Um, and and there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you can, you can get equity, you can get, um, you know, a, a share uh, in the upside. And I, I try to balance that as best I can. And quite frankly, that's, 
when I'm doing an acquisition, um, we're, we're keeping all that value. Um, so that, that, that's a better gig than showing up as an hourly consultant. One of the first things I do with any book, I go to the back and read the bibliography. I, I kid you not. And that's where I get a lot of ideas for uh, next books I want to read. Well, in your book, at the end, you have, among all the other books that you list, you have, you have The Prince in there. Well, why? I'm just curious. I, I think I know why, but how did that get included uh, with your list of other books? So I sent you a list of books that I've read, which is like, I don't know, 55 or 60, all in sort of the turnaround uh, distressed M&A world. And I listed maybe half of those in the bibliography. And I'm thinking just what other books were uh, instrumental. And I put in uh, The Prince, um, The the Six Rings, uh, which is a Japanese uh, strategy book. I didn't add Sun Tzu. But I, you know, those classics are, I, I think, really get to the human condition. One thing I've thought about in the Prince, well, one thing I remember from the Prince, and it's been interesting to watch, um, there's three ways to take over a foreign land. Um, one is complete obliteration, which is what uh, Putin's right now doing in, um, in, in certain cities. The other is to move in, um, to, to basically take it over, move there, and and colonize it, um, which is really, I think, what the English did. You know, they they would go to a place and they'd bring in, the English were such phenomenal administrators that they would bring in their government, their administration, and just start running things. And and the India, wherever they were, sort of falls into that. Um, and then the third way is kind of how Putin's been running Russia, um, where you basically set up oligarchs oligopolies and you manage the oligopolist. Um, so maybe in, you just manage the 30 people who are all running the industry in the country. Um, and, you know, but w- whatever it was 500 years ago, that's what um, Machiavelli said are the three ways. And, um, you know, as a turnaround person, I'm, I'm more the British way. Uh, we roll in, we administer, we change process, controls, functions, and and change the hearts and minds of people. Um, and, you know, and the reputation might be that we just obliterate and bomb it to the, to the ground, but really it's, it's a hearts and minds um, conquest. Great illustration. Great, great analogy. One last one, uh, the, the one that didn't work. You, you do share a story in the book, the one that, that just didn't work out. But as I was reading that, I was thinking, I bet Jeff learned as much about that one and some of the other ones that don't work out as you do the ones that do have great success stories. Is there truth to that? There is, absolutely. And um, I, I, I chastise pot management thinking a fair amount in the book. And, you know, one of, one of those trite little things is... Thank you, by the way. <laughs> one of those trite little sayings is, you know, there's no such thing as luck. It's all about preparation. And I say, like, no one's ever had a house burned down or got hit by a hurricane or a heart attack. And um, my quip is there's always luck. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but it's always out there. And, um, you know, clearly some of my successes have had an unfair amount of good luck and um, we got lucky getting out of it. And some have had an unfair amount of bad luck and, um, you know, they just bash your brains in, but that's where you learn a lot. And I, you know, I, I would not be in this 
in in this profession, and I would not have the success I did if it hadn't been my own business. And I look at other people who grew up through accounting and get into turnarounds, and um, like they just don't, you know, not that we ever compete, but they just wouldn't have a chance at fixing the things that I can fix because I've, you know, I, I've had the sleepless nights. I, I've walked, you know, the proverbial mile in somebody else's shoes. I've done like a thousand of them, um, and I'm. That's where you learn the, the the best lessons. I want to raise up. I want to do a quick shout out to any CEO who's ever gone through a turnaround where they actually called someone like you for help. That doesn't happen often, but that is the mark of a man or woman of humility. You know, I, I need some help. And I'm sure you get those calls periodically, maybe not as many as you like. But having said that, tell us a little bit about your practice. Uh, if people want to learn more about your business, what 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 what's the step one, step two, step three of your firm? So um, it's a good point on the proactivity, and those people are less likely to get in trouble in the first place because they're proactive, because they're thinking ahead, because they search for results before the bank tells them to search for results. Um, and I love getting those calls. You know, essentially, it's a tune-up. It doesn't have, and I wrote the book from, and I, and I say it up front, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to go through the most extreme examples because all the lessons are in an extreme example. And, but, you know, my work is a lot of tune-ups um, where they lost a customer or, uh you know, costing got out of control or something like that. And and those are great. They don't take a lot of radical change, but it's more like let's build your systems processes, get you out of this. And, you know, God, those are the best situations in the world where you work with somebody who really works with you as a partner and you have like this intense and intimate experience for say six months. And, um, and then they're off on their own. My, my roles are usually three to nine months. Um, we, for, you know, anybody who's interested, um, we don't charge until there's an engagement agreement signed by the client, which really means that we're going to have lots of conversations. I'm going to go through all your financial information. I'm going to read everything I possibly can. And at some point I'll understand enough to put an engagement letter together and then you'll sign it, and then we're and then we're working together. But until then, it's basically free advice and um, free diagnosis, and I'm sorting it out. And and a lot of times, you know, there's people with a, a small problem, or it just doesn't make sense for me, or or they're too small to, um, you know, to uh, a business under a million dollars isn't going to be able to afford, you know. And I'm, we're sort of around the price of a lawyer. You know, you just can't afford that if you're a small business. So I'll give them a ton of free advice, send them on their way. Um, you know, I'm in this, I'm in, you can tell I'm in this because this is like my thing. You know, I found my thing and this is it and I love it. And if I, you know, somebody gave me a billion dollars tomorrow, I'd wake up and do the same thing. Uh, just I'd sleep better at night um, and occasionally take cooler vacations. But, you know, so I, I'm, I'm happy to take those calls and just give people advice, make a new friend somewhere and, uh, and send them on their way and wait for the next call. It's very obvious that you are a reader. As you said earlier, you sent me an email or you sent me a Word document of all of the turnaround books that you know about. I think I have about seven or eight of them, which so I, I love this subject. 
Uh, I, I think every business school should have either your book or Jim's book, Jim Shine's book as part of the curriculum. It's like, why, why not? It just, what a great way to learn business. But having said that, can you think of a couple other titles that have been transformative uh, to you? Can you think of a couple of titles that you, you keep going back to them, that they've been a big impact in your career or have you already shared them? You know, I, I would say I've I've shared them in that list. I, I love Shine's book. I think there's a grand total. Uh, um, was on the uh, Turnaround Management Association certification committee, and we're trying to track where where it's being taught. Turnarounds are being taught, and I think there's like five uh, colleges that teach it. it. It's just shocking how rarely it's taught. Um, Syracuse, Northwestern, Northeastern, Babson. Virginia, and there might be another. That's that's about it. Um, as far as books, and and since um, we found each other, I've listened, I've binge listened to I don't know fifteen or so of your episodes. You, that, so I, that means a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> oh, they're great. Um, and um, I was thinking about books. Uh, I'll tell you, the best book I've ever read that I would recommend for anybody is the Brother Karasmazov. Uh, considered the greatest novel by the greatest novelist of all time. And it is, I, I was a philosophy minor. I've read gobs of philosophy and that is such it, it, fab, like just perfectly elegantly written by word and the depth of the thoughts and the contrast in there is just stunning. I've read two of his books. I actually like crime and punishment. Better. Yes. I, I just, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how is it that an author can start getting you to pull for a person who did a bad, I mean, the protagonist is actually, I mean, he did a bad thing, but yet you're feeling for him. And I just thought, how did the author pull this off? But that, that's, that book is a great one, but I love Crime and Punishment too. Agreed. And something I heard about those, I read this once and I, I haven't found it again, but I read that he didn't write, he would, sit down in the evenings and drink a lot and just dictate out to a young woman who scribed it. And if you, and which means that he kept the complexity of those stories all in his head with all those characters and the deep character development he does when you get like so far into their psyche, it was all in his head and he just dictated it out with wine every night. Uh, which, you know, it takes it to a, a, another level beyond. And I'll tell you, my other, um, probably my most influential author as a kid, and you'll appreciate this being from Missouri, was uh, Mark Twain. I read, I, I, well, I, I lived my childhood between St. Louis and New Orleans. And, um, I, you know, I just read all that and the idea of being able to hop on a raft and, and have an adventure and go someplace that further than my parents ever drove me was just so compelling. Um I, I loved Mark Twain and still do. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It's the book. Please don't let it come to an end. Don't <laughs> stop. Don't don't end. Well, we could go on. I, I first of all, can we stay in touch? Uh, I absolutely hope, and well, keep listening to your podcast. And, for I, sure. and I would like to have you back because I have a, more questions for you. And uh, again, we could talk. We could talk for several hours. So. Again, thank you for and doing someday, this. Someday this inflation bubble will be over and uh, we'll be back to a normal uh, cycle and it'll be more topical. Exactly. 
Uh, Jeff, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Jeff Sands, the author of Corporate Turnaround Artistry. And I don't think Jeff will mind me sharing this since you may be driving, walking around, running, or on the go elsewhere. I'm going to repeat this twice. Jeff's website is dorsetpartners.com. Again, dorsetpartners.com. Dorset is D as in dog, O, one R, one S, one E as in Edward, and one T, dorsetpartners.com. Reach out to him. And you can also find him on Twitter and LinkedIn. If you connect, I know he'll gladly accept, and I'm sure he'll answer your questions. We are going to wrap up with three questions. Number one, you heard Jeff talking about broken income statements and broken balance sheets. Now, yours are probably okay, more than likely. So the question is, why? Why are your income statements and balance sheets at your company not broken? And this is a another question to tag on to it. Can you adequately, adequately explain why your business is healthy? And I used to audit banks when I was in public accounting. And there is this term called camels. Camels is short for capital adequacy, asset quality, management, earnings, liquidity, and sensitivity. And so when I help business owners fortifying their business models, camel is always in my hip pocket. So that's a tool to think about. Think of camels as you think about is your balance sheet or income statement broken? It's probably not, but why? Again, use camels as a tool to help answer your question. Uh, Number two, it's not a question. It's more of a homework assignment. Document your company's debt stack. Cheating is okay. So if you want to go to your note disclosures and your audit report review or full disclosure compilation, hey, that's okay. But but this one's tricky. Jeff and I did not mention off-balance sheet liabilities. For example, uh, certain leases. Now, I think note disclosures have changed uh, on building leases. But for example, that five-year operating lease, where does that go? Where does that go in the debt stack? And again, there are going to be other items that you may not think to include. Have your controller do that or someone on your finance team. And then question number three is in the context of Jeff's five stages of a turnaround. I loved that part of the conversation. My question is, what type of a CEO are you? Or if you're not a CEO, what type of a CEO are they? Are they the 100-day change agent? Or are they one uh, the one-year stabilization CEO where they are process and systems focused? Or are they the growth or slow incremental CEO? Now, I want to back up a little bit. 
I want to use the stratum thinking from the requisite organization. Stratum thinking or the stratum mindset is what is your time frame? And it's something that we grow into cognitively. So for example, the the warehouse worker, their stratum thinking is they're thinking of that day or maybe that hour, whereas the supervisor is thinking one week out, whereas the CEO or the general manager may be thinking three months to six months out. So the 100-day change agent, well, that's kind of cheating. I mean, we already that they're thinking 90 days out, and it's going to be on a rolling basis. Uh, the one-year stabilization CEO, they're probably thinking more on a one-year time horizon. And then the growth of the slow incremental change CEO, they're probably thinking more two to three years out. Now, that doesn't mean they don't think about the next week, the next 13 weeks, the next quarter, the next three quarters, the next year. They're thinking still two to three years out. So having said that, what type of a CEO are you or what type of CEO do you serve? I think that's important because have you ever noticed that some CEOs, they seem restless? I truly believe, and I know Jeff believes this, there are probably some CEOs who are really geared being the 100-day change agent, but yet they're serving in that growth or slow incremental change CEO. So it's not just a nice, fun little exercise question I think it's relevant and it could lead to maybe some changes. Who knows? Anyway, great interview. Jeff Sands, thank you a lot. Recommend his book. And we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.